out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Bobby Valentino, one time a member of uh, the Fabulous Poodles, also Hank Wangford, the Bluebells, and much, much more. The internationally renowned violinist, musician, actor, singer, songwriter... Anyway, I could go on for days, couldn't I? Anyway, this, after several minutes of casual chat and getting to know each other, it's showbiz. It's so showbiz. Uh, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Bobby, tell us more. It's over to you. I was in the school choir and the school orchestra. I was terrible in the orchestra. Were you? <laughs> I can't, my, my reading isn't as good as it should be. Right. My my sight my sight reading is terrible. I can read music, but uh, I'm slow. Yes. So when was it? When you heard something on the radio or on telly, probably more radio. Um, when you or your parents were listening to something, you thought, "God, I love that. This is going to be my thing." I'm, I'm not sure it ever happened like that because I think, of course, as a kid, you know, you get to hear the songs and we used to love nursery rhymes. And then it was Uncle Mac. You're old enough for Uncle Mac. No. Children's favourites or children's choice on a Saturday morning. Right. On the the light programme. Nice. Um, (laughs) You know, it was the precursor of what must be be Radio 2, I suppose, the light programme. Yes. And um, because you had the home service, which was what Radio 4 is, um, the light programme, which is roughly what Radio 2 is now, and the third programme, which is what Radio 3 is. <laughs> and that's for all the radio you got. That was it. Yes, well, absolutely. And I know you're a bit younger than people like David Bowie and Lemmy, but they were the same age. And whenever they were asked about their musical moment, they both would say, you know, it was Little Richard and then bands around that around that kind of genre and that time. It, so what, it, what were your it, kind no, of... It, it wouldn't have been because my parents didn't like pop music. Right. You know, they really sort of stuck their nose up at it as it were and so my mother was amateur opera singer so she did all the local amateur opera uh, and she played the violin and not well she wasn't bad she might have been a professional had world war ii not got in the way because she was about mm-hmm. 16 when world war ii broke out but as soon as it finished she just you know she just wanted to settle down and start breathing um but they put a violin under my chin when I was four. Okay. Uh, so I was walking around the house playing nursery rhymes badly uh, when I was about four years old. Yes. And um, and I slowly drifted into music. Blimey. Um, I had no, no intention of doing it, um, but I could play and it just seemed to come quite easy for me. Yeah. Did well, you get lessons? Gr- did you get lessons? I, I did, but I wasn't very good at them. Right. Um, so I went from lessons from as soon as I got to primary school and then, you know, unwillingly dragged the violin to school as we do. And then up until about 13 or 14, when I stopped doing the violin lessons because I really got to sort of loathe it. And then I'd also started on the mandolin then. And I was getting so good on the mandolin, it was just so easy. When I was about 17, I went to the visiting violin, or went to see the visiting violin teacher at school, 
I'd said, look, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm playing, I'm all right, but I need a technique. And she was brilliant, a woman called Elizabeth Hamilton. And she didn't insist too much that I read the music. She just sort of gave me exercises to do, which I did. Because um, I'd, I'd figured out how to improvise by then, which is quite rare for violin players. We, we, I mean, it's, it's not part of the makeup. You read stuff all the time. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, actually, I'm actually a bit of a rarity with a violin player. I'll just make it up on the spot. Yes. And, with, is... and, with, and as you were sort of getting into that teen period, you know, obviously the 60s were sort of in flow, full flow at that time. You know, everyone was getting very excited. They were sort of getting naked, taking drugs. You know, there was brilliant albums. I, I mean, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> no, but by the age of... Um, 18, you would have... I mean, 1966, I was 12, you know, so I was hardly getting naked and taking drugs. No, no, not at 12, actually, you wouldn't have been, actually. But by the late, by by 1970, though, you would have definitely been at that point where you'd have been thinking, God, this is going to be amazing. No, even then, I I was um, set to do science. Um, I did really well at school with physics and maths. I've actually got five A-levels, but they're all in physics, maths, and technical drawing and stuff like that. Yes. Um, um, but the summer between school and university, I ended up, ended up working as a musician and actually making a living as a musician. So when I got to university, I got really bored with it. And I quit uh, end of the second term, so Easter, whenever it was, 74. Yeah, Easter 1974. And within six weeks, I was a full-time musician. And apart from all the little bits and pieces in between, that's what I've done. Yes, <clears throat> there you go. But I mean, it, there's lots of musicians you'll find that sort of go with maths and that kind of thing a lot for some especially, reason. Yeah, especially drummers. I would have thought so, yeah, because you're yeah. breaking up the bar into fixed lengths, you know. Having Plank. that kind of broom. Definitely not singers, though. They're just, they're all over the place, aren't they? Well, I, I'm, I, I'm a bit of both. You know what I mean? Because I... I really think I've got the sort of the math, the maths basis as well. But I've also sort of I like to think I'm slightly artistic, statistic. Well, yes. I, I mean, the the great line about the singers, I've got to tell you. How do you know there's a singer knocking at the door? God, I know the one about the drummer when you <laughs> at the door. Yeah, well, they I'm... speed they speed up, but a singer's knocking at the door. You know, it's a singer because they don't know when to come in and they haven't got the key. <laughs> <laughs> God, that's really good. Yes. Um... Oh, there's loads of them. There's loads of them. What's the difference between a violin and a viola? Viola burns longer. <laughs> There's loads of them, you know. Just look up viola jokes on the internet. There's just hundreds of them. Brilliant. Yes. So when, so then at that point at university, though, when you were still vaguely there for your first term, not feeling that keen, did you were you starting to sort of become more aware of that kind of the world that was the pop charts and and sort of the world that is, I suppose, the the end of the sixties and that you know the death. Kind of, kind of. I mean, maybe maybe sort of around about 18 and stuff, you know, but I just thought it was a hobby then, you know, just that when um, I started making money out of it, I thought, great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and, but you, you sort of, you formed the Poodles 75, didn't you? 
74, I think, believe it or 74, not. which is a kind of an interesting period because 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 you had sort of the glam period and you had a bit of heavy metal and then sort of a lot of pub rock and 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 slightly starting to sort of get a bit smoldery or at least a little bit was that early punk movement but that hadn't quite happened. But so so what were why, where were you sort of trying to fit into that? Well, I, I, like many other sort of young musos, we ended up in bands that used to do five-minute solos. You know, like the, the, the prog rock thing, which uh, it was like, oh, this is horrible. You know, and people go, I want to do three-minute pop songs, which is the same approach that the punks had. Um, but I suppose the people I was with had slightly more musical education. <laughs> <laughs> but not a lot. <laughs> and um, so we ended up, you know, been doing three minute pop songs, really. Yeah. And did you have quite a cult following straight away? With the Poodles, probably not. The thing that really started it was somehow we ended up getting a residency at the Marquee. Um, we did a Sunday night, and um, there was five Sundays in whatever month that was. And come the end of that, that month we were absolutely packing the place sweat down the walls sort of thing you know all the old corny lines they say about the marquee yeah we literally came off stage sopping wet yeah and and one thing just slightly fast forward than that i think it was the 80s i watched a film i expect everyone mentions this don't they peter's friends where there were stephen fry and kenneth Brown. yeah 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 yeah. not many no no there's, there's not many people know that <laughs> oh, actually, so i uh, so I was in the cinema, cinema city, and they went, oh, I remember, and they were reminiscing as one of them was about to die of something. And he said, oh, I remember the good old days at Cambridge or Oxford and the fabulous it was actually Poodles. Bradford, it was Bradford University. Right. And I remember was, it in the film, because they'd mentioned the Queen's Hall, I think it was, in Bradford, which was part of Bradford University, very near, close to the cinema museum that they've got there. And I remember doing the gig, it was an old swimming pool that they'd covered over. You know, one of those old ones with a balcony around it. So it actually worked quite well as a venue. <laughs> and there was a support act. And I have a feeling that one of them, whoever, I think it was written by Rita Radner, wasn't it, in that movie? I think <laughs> it was, who we don't see anymore. Right. And so either her or somebody who was involved in writing it must have been in the support act. I have no idea who. Yeah, well, it's close. And obviously, you thought, "My God, if only you'd be, had a track on your on the soundtrack, it would have been magic." Well, talk to which I mean, Tony Tony Demur from the Fabulous Poodles ended up um, having a track in Four Weddings and a Funeral, which was cut. Oh, <laughs> oh, I don't know. It was. Um... They, they were one of the bands. His his band, Ronnie and the Rex, um, was one of the bands at one of the weddings. Right. They did, they did one of his songs and he was so miffed. Oh, no. Because there's obviously, we all know the Nick Lowe, Peace, Love and Understanding, being in one of those, The Bodyguard or something. It was yeah. like, and that was like the last track. They were looking for one more song. And they, and I remember hearing this story because somebody did a book who I interviewed about Nick Lowe. And, and I don't know, the head of the record company heard, was in a bar and heard a song, went, Who's this? And it's like, Oh, it's a song by Nick Lowe. He said, Oh, well, let's put that on the soundtrack. And it's like, that was his, his pension pot, really, wasn't it? Oh, his songs are just amazing. I mean, Young at Heart's my pension pot. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, I well, mean, absolutely. It's, 
So then, as the band formed, did it all? You know, how did you meet people like Tony and and Richie? Well, and- to begin with, it was started by a guy called Bob Suffolk, who ended up not in the band at all. Well, not even from Suffolk. Um, Bob Bob Suffolk is is actually designed studios now in Texas, doing very well over in Texas. Excellent. Uh, and um, he and a guy called John Bentley. Oh, it's so complicated. He knew a guy. I was working as a temp in the local tax office. And I met a guy called Ken Simmons there, and he died recently. And he said, oh, come and join these, because he knew these guys were getting a band together. And this guy, Bob Suffolk, wanted to call them the Poodles. So the three of us got together, and it seemed all right. You know, I like the pop songs, you know, simple pop songs. And um, then we ended up, asking because they knew Tony Demur, but he lived in North London. So he joined us and we got a drummer. And then we started doing a few gigs and, you know, built up the cult following, as it were. And then sort of somehow we got tours of Holland. And at one tour of Holland, Bob Suffolk said, oh, sorry, I can't do it. I mean, he had a bit of a breakdown, I think. And um, so we promptly rearranged everything as a four-piece without keyboards. And all of a sudden, we thought, this sounds great. You know, because it it was all so crunchy. We just guitar, bass, drums, and a violin. And um, we just stayed that way. Never mm. added anybody else. That's amazing. And, where do, and how did John Parsons become part of the, the stable? John Parsons was a mate of Tony. Right, and he'd been writing songs with Tony. I mean, Tony writes songs all the time, but they're often—I mean—extremely good and extremely funny. Um, but too much comedy in music doesn't sell. I mean, um, we don't have any funny bands anymore. I mean, I grew up with the Baron Knights, brilliant, and then and then well, I ended up with the Bonzo Dog Doodah band, of course, which I absolutely adored. Yes, well, Vivian's a, cl- a genius, isn't he? Oh, Vivian, Vivian we, I remember doing the Nashville rooms, and he was in a bit of a state by that time, but he was the support act. We just thought, what, Viv Stanshaw is our support act? Yeah, that's embarrassing. And um, <laughs> he was so funny, though. I mean, he was, you know, a bit of a pisshead at the time. And um, he ended up entering the room. He'd got a metal tray, you know, those old-fashioned pub metal trays. Yes. And um, he he just entered the room from the back, just bashing himself on the head with this metal tray. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's quite weird because um, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember the Pogues when they started... Spider, who used to be the penny whistle player, he used to use the metal tray a lot on his head. He obviously realised he couldn't keep doing that for long because it was yeah. And there was there was some there was some act I seem to remember that did mule train, mule train. Oh, and he used to sort of whenever the whip came in, he used to bash himself on the head with the metal tray. I'm sure he was on. What was what was the what was the talent show then? Huey Green. Huey Green, yes. It was Huey Green, ran it? I can't remember the name of the show. Opportunity Knocks? Opportunity Knocks, that was it, yes. Yes. Oh, I think he was on Opportunity Knocks, and I think he won it for a couple of weeks, just doing his mule tray, <laughs> <laughs> batting himself on the head. Uh, it, was such, 
but there's no, but, but we don't have those bonzo dogs, you know, that those funny acts anymore that we, we used to grow up with, with as kids. No, and I think it would be a bit tricky in a way. I don't know. It's kind of, yeah. like, there was a lot of novelty songs in the sort of 70s, yeah. wasn't there? I mean, the, near, the nearest thing we got, got to real humour was the last one, I think, was something like um, Neil Hannon. Um, with uh, oh uh, yes the national express national express that kind of thing you know that kind of quirky funniness i suppose I thought the, the poodles were a bit like that but we dumped the out and out comedy yeah because you because i often think the poodles are a little bit like that liverpool band called death school which were also it was, but there was another guy who had one of these didn't he i'm afraid I, Enrico I, I, I made that link with him but they were also I would say the A word, quite arty, weren't they? And you... Yes, they, they were much more arty than we were. None of us went to art school. They were an art school band. Yes. Though I think John Parsons kind of... John Parsons did, oh yes. I mean, he was a teacher at... That's right, yeah. He was he, an he, art yeah. teacher. I mean, I mean, he. it was great having him as the lyricist. Yeah. Um, because so, again, um... he, he, wasn't, he was writing witty lyrics that weren't overtly just plain funny. So yeah. the wit kind of worked, but... But if you have literally funny stuff, it doesn't sell, or it doesn't. You don't listen to it over and over again. You kind no, of listen to God, funny you stuff. Don't, you don't want to hear it. What's that kind you know, of Benny, Benny Hill? <laughs> oh like, well, um, yeah, I mean, well, I've never that was that keen on Benny Hill. I must admit. Uh, well, I Ernie's, Ernie, Ernie the fastest. His songs were nice. Ernie the fastest Milkman in the West is really good. A lot yeah. of his songs are great. But because uh, but, having done this show for quite a long time, and I'd slightly worked it out, but not quite so so much as I have now, most bands have a quite a set narrative. And I've got it down to sort of four to five years where they, especially the 80s, which is kind of the decade that I've often focused on. But you know, they get together, you know, they, they, they're often quite young. And in the 80s, there was a lot of people who were unemployed for a year because they were on the Enterprise Alliance scheme. You know, they made a single which was a bit kind of quirky. John Peel would play it, give him the session. First album, things were going good. There was also a lot of venues all over the country and every every town would have an alternative indie night of some description, you know, and they would get yeah. gigs. So the first album often going well. Then the second album, you know, the reality of being in a band is difficult. You know, the dynamic. The yes, life. classically, the difficult second album. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, not just, the, you know, what we're going to write about, but actually I can't laugh at your jokes anymore. Don't say that thing every time something happens. Cause... Well, that is... That, that, that... <laughs> That is difficult. The band gets bored with the joke. The audience doesn't because you've got a different audience every night. Yes, but being in the van at sort of three o'clock in the morning, unpacking your stuff, you probably yeah. just, you know, you get to know each other a bit too well, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, you know, one of the things is, I think music musos are mostly fairly tolerant. Because <laughs> we have to be. <laughs> I think it's all okay if everyone's on the same drink or drug, but I think it's when when they don't, when they're not compatible, when not when the band is slightly split on what they're doing. Yes, I mean, I, I, I can remember ended up in bands where you know the lead singer got into the wrong sort of drugs and it just fell apart very fast. Yeah, very fast. But then you were you were sort of doing because you know which was quite amazing because a lot of british bands don't manage to do this you got quite a gig in america supporting people like the ramones and tom petty and the heartbreakers which must have felt i mean the ramones it, it was great must yeah. have been quite surreal the ramones were fab fabulous um they, they didn't mix with us at all we did about three gigs with ramones 
And the most amazing thing was they ran through the whole of their set before they went on in the dressing room. They had little amps and a little drum pads. And uh, they literally ran. They did the whole of the set before they went on. They then went on. And their energy level, as soon as they got there, was phenomenal. Because they'd already been playing for half an hour in the dressing room. Wow. Um, the set only lasted 25, 30 minutes because <laughs> you just couldn't keep that energy. Nobody could keep that energy level up yes. for much longer than that. So had you played in CBGB's or Max's Kansas City? I don't think I ever played there. We used to hang out there in the Mud Club and places like that in New York. Nice. Um, but that was for you know, a couple of years as the Poodles were, were you know, being famous, you know. Well, we did, you know, we did things like the Whiskey A Go-Go, lots of Agoras all over America. But yeah. it was great fun. I mean, I loved the tour with Tom Petty. It was our second American tour. And um, so anyway, our manager came up and said, oh, I've got your support slot with Tom Petty. And I'd already sort of, Tom Petty was bigger over here than he was in America. But I'd already discovered the first two albums. And I thought they were brilliant. And, you know, I played them nonstop. And then suddenly, you're going to support Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Wow! Yes, and, um, it's probably my best touring experience ever. You know, every single night I was side stage watching them, pretty much. God, um, that must have been amazing, actually. And they and were how, fantastic. Interestingly enough, two things that often break a band up is um, I don't know what's the two things. One, I can't remember the one. Probably, I don't know. Money's one of them. Money's one. Of, but the second one from the UK. Um, is often with a lot of people, they go, oh yeah, we did the second album, then da-da-da, and then we toured America, and then we, and this is often what they say, we, and we came to, went to America, came back and broke up. So how did you, I mean, and that's kind of 90% of the bands have often said that, they said that just... We, we ended up breaking up like that. I mean, the, the, America was weird, because we ended up with, um, our road manager was my best mate at, at secondary school. And I remember him saying to me, it's funny, over here, the other three are completely different to what they're like in England. You're no different at all. <laughs> so they, they, they kind of went a bit mad because America is a bit sort of um, a lot of temptation. Right. So that was the temptation. Uh, they could resist every, everything but temptation. Right. And I guess that that's I think it. that's Oscar Wilde, isn't it? <laughs> probably. He would have probably said it better then, but that's Oscar for you. Yeah, geez. What yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it kind of happened like that. But basically, I think we would have carried on had we managed to be able to keep doing gigs in the UK and Europe, but the other guys sort of decided, let's fire the management. And as soon as they fired the management, it ended up falling on, it had to be me to do it. And you just can't, without management behind you at that level, you just cannot do it yourself. No. I mean, there's absolutely. a level, only there's a level up to how far a band can do it. You know, you can just about make a living, but if you want to get bigger, you really do need management. Yeah, absolutely. No, and and having the right manager. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the manager is, you mean, I mean, it's the fifth Beatle or whatever. You know what I mean, it's always um, the management that makes the band really big. Yeah. I mean, they've got, they've got, you know, you've got to have somebody who can, you know, who's talented in the middle of it, as it was, you know what I mean? But once you fire the management, you don't get another one. And we fired the management. Oh, dear. Was, Oh, you know, the others, what I thought, no, stick with him. You know, he's there, he's good, he, you know, he does it, he likes us. 
he's a, he's a bit of a crook, but he's our crook. <laughs> <laughs> I think someone like either Sting or somebody had the same idea that you just, you just have to have a sort of mafia type person who's going to, you know, you realize they're, they're making a lot, but they're going to make you a lot at the same time. I suppose it's yeah. the Peter Grant thing and all that, you know. Uh, I mean, Peter Grant was um, Tony Dimitriadis with Tom Petty, you know, a real fan of the band, but, you know, was in it for the gravy. <clears throat> um, and um, Peter Grant, as you say, and all those, um, God, was I thinking of um, Ed Bicknell from Dire Straits? Yes. You know, without Ed Bicknell, I doubt they'd have, well, they'd have found somebody because Mark's like that. Yeah, I guess so. But then at the same time, you want someone. To, I mean, I did the, the other guys, Stuart, Miles Copeland, who was, yeah. you know, I mean, he he could definitely see potential and money. So he was, he was away, wasn't he? And yes. So look, with the band, though, because you had a very intense time. This is the sort of 70s. You did sort of four albums in four years plus touring. So how did you manage? Three, to- I think. Three. I mean, there's four albums. Because the first one in America was um, the best of the first two. Right. In the, we had two in the UK. We needed an album to come out in America. So I think it was called Mirror Stars, wasn't it? Yes, that was. That is basically that's basically a mix of the first two British albums. Okay, so Fabulous Poodles, Unsuitable, and then the last um, one was Think Pink. Think Pink. Yeah. Yes. Bang, what was bang. the atmosphere? What was the atmosphere like when you were recording that? Fine. I mean, great. You know, um, we were very quick, very fast. We'd do a lot of work in the rehearsal studio before we went in um, because we were aware that studio time costs money. Work it out before you get there. Yes. Which people don't seem to do very often these days. (laughs) Um, um, But, I mean, we just, you know, worked them up quite a lot, a lot before we, in the studio and how did you get on with producers because that's the other thing that people i mean again like management you know a good producer can do so much and a bad not a bad producer but a producer who says a few things that annoys everyone isn't such um looking at the time it felt great because we were i was learning all the time but looking back um they hadn't a clue how to deal with a violin um and in fact i actually think the best recordings of the Poodles are the last. Oh, hang on, did I just lose the microphone? There? Oh no, I just lost the headphone. Um, the best recordings we did was things like Talking Trash and Toy Town People and stuff. And we ended up producing those because we, we had a sense of what the live um, the live sound sounded like. Because we, we often thought, looking back, I think the, the producers made us too smooth. Right. Yeah, I mean, did you, because you did a couple of John Peel sessions and often a lot of people, even though they all had, you know, this is a game in the 80s, they had Dale Griffith and no one, well, about two people had a good experience, everyone else didn't. But um, for Mott- no, I used to like, we used to like John Peel sessions and I think our John Peel sessions are often better than the records. Yeah, and most people have a good sound, even though they don't often enjoy it because they were quite young del griffiths gives them a hard time and <laughs> hates them oh, I, I remember i mean always got me was the, the producers that, that, that they they sort of foisted on you for the peel sessions and i can't remember any of their names one of them one or two of them were all right but one of them i remember saying he kept on leaving the studio every so often and he said 
I have to every so often because the sound just builds up in my ears and I just have to go. You're a record producer. (laughs) Wow, that's interesting. Because you did two. You did one in 77 and one in 78. So during that time... Did we only do two? Because my memory is more than that. But it might only be No, three. you it did three. Right. You did one in 76. Oh, right. <laughs> yes, and one in 77, one in 78. So obviously, Peel was a big fan. How were you coping, though? Because obviously, you do have that um, situation of having a sound that doesn't sort of fit with any what's going on in the charts, either, you know, the smooth pop sound that's often going to be in the top 20, or, you know, like prog rock had pretty much had its day. But then you did have the punk and you had everybody being a bit vital. Because one of those bands that were just about to make it big was a band called Clover from America. And I think they landed in the UK the day that, you know, the Sex Pistols released Nevermind the Bollocks. And it's a bit like, I'm afraid this is not the time for this band. And uh, they, they bizarrely backed uh, El- Elvis Presley, uh, Elvis Presley, <laughs> Elvis Costello on his one of his first albums. Huey Lewis um, was in Clover. So timing oh. is everything. Did you, I mean, did you, when you were with the band, think, look, guys, you know, look, we've got the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Dam. We need to somehow make it a little bit rockier. Um, I think that was happening in any case with us. I mean, we, we ended up quite rocky. Um, I'm quite, um, but you probably never saw us live. I mean, the live stuff isn't like the records. Right. Um, and it was a lot chunkier and, you know, harder live, which, um, I mean, there was never a really a live album, but there's some live stuff on YouTube and some of it's quite good. Um, the live version of, um, Toy Town People is great. I'm really surprised how good the sound is on that. Yeah. But well, yes, you know, we had we had fun, yeah, um, and and I learned a lot. I mean, I, I I felt there was a lot of a learning in it. So then, what happens when you walk away and the band finish in the eighties? What happens to you during that decade? Because obviously, it's like, oh right, this is well. I, I there was a I, I I lived in Deptford, or I didn't actually live. Did I live in Deptford then? For a bit, I lived in Deptford. I've now gone a bit south to Broccoli, it's the nice bit of Deptford, um, and. Our local bands were things like, you know, there was a, um, there was a Crossfields Festival. There was a Crossfields Estate, rather, um, down in Deptford, which was an old council estate, um, 1930s, that they'd built a dual carriageway through. Um, so the local council said, right, we can't have children living here anymore. And they did a special letting scheme, which was supposed to be just for five years. Um, and they just let it out to young people, students, musicians, or you know, people who would. It was dead easy to get a, a council flat there because of this dual carriageway, and of course, it attracted to the students, um, artists of all sorts, and all of a sudden, it turned into an ideal council estate because right. they all sort of organised themselves, you know, the way these sort of young middle class students and musos and artists would, and. Um, we ended up having festivals every year. There was a festival, free festival. And one year, there was Squeeze, Dire Straits, The Fabulous Poodles, um, ATV. Do you remember that? Mark Perry's band? Yes, ATV. Um, and all those sort of local bands. So, so you know, it Squeeze, Poodles, and Dire Straits. And there was a local band called The Realists. And we were all set up on a lawn outside Mark Lopfler's flat with the power coming out of a, over his balcony out to a sort of makeshift PA. 
um, with the local pub illegally providing cans. Um, and it all t- and, and now it's one of the nicest estate, council estates in London. Excellent. Oh, that's really nice. So then, because they were going to put it down, but everybody sort of did it up and made it quite a scene. Mm. So, so then, do you do you become a gun sort of a gun for hire then after that? Well, after that, I ended up joining a band called we called, called the look the Electric Blue. We ended up being called the Bluebirds, um, uh, which was half dire straits and a couple of local poodles. And we used to just play a regular thing down a local pub on a Sunday night, which used to get packed with no rehearsal. We just if somebody knew the words to a song, we did it. That was it. Yes. No amps, no amps, all acoustic. And then eventually the, the Bluebirds started doing right. Well, it ended up as a, we ended up developing into the first Cajun band in this country. All of a sudden I go from rock music to playing the, the crudest form of country music and loved it. Yes. But then, then, then I started, somehow I started getting sessions. Um, I can't remember why, but I ended up in the, in, in the 80s, I think, the session list is quite ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes. we can name drop to the cows come home. Which must have felt quite extraordinary. Um, at the time, it didn't seem very special at all. <laughs> I mean, the, the weird thing was, I think, um, Shiny Shiny, the Hazy Fantasy song. Yeah. Um, which I, I was the first hit I played on. was only my second session or something like that. And at one point, I'd done six sessions, and four of them had turned into hits. So the people started booking me. <laughs> well, you know, minor hits. I mean, the, 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 I think Shiny Shiny got to about number eight or something like that. Yeah, but all the same. You know, it's good to at least it's going somewhere. So what, what's the story behind Young at Heart by the Bluebells? Um, I did a session for... For Nick Lowe, I don't know how Nick Lowe got hold of me, but I did a session for him. Um, and the engineer was a guy called Colin Fairley. Colin Fairley took my number, rang me up about a week or so later, and said, I've got the perfect thing for you. Come and play on this. Um, so I turned up. I remember it was pouring me rain. And um, I'd left within half an hour. It was the easiest session I'd ever done. Um, but I made it all up on the spot. <laughs> um, the band were basically stone stupid sitting in the corner giggling because I looked a bit like Clark Gable. <laughs> and um, so I did it, you know, just did it. Um, they said, oh, I want something jiggy at the beginning, which is that famous hook line that I put in, which I ended up going to court, unfortunately, to get some writing credits. Um, it was a bit silly, that. Yeah. And um, then I ended up, he said, oh, we've got a solo coming up. So I did a sort of conventional country-ish solo. And he said, yeah, that's all right. The producer at the time said, oh, that's all right. But could you do something that people would want to put put the record on to hear again? And I went, okay. Um, can I do something like Owner of a Lonely Heart or the guitar solo in on Beat It that Eddie Van Halen did? Yeah, um, the Michael Jackson track, where it's all basically noises that fit. If, if you think about it, they're not melodic solos; they're just noises on guitars that fit. Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. 
Yes, I remember that was there. That really weird solo and that ludicrous solo in Beat It. And the solo in that was my attempt to do a heavy metal <laughs> sort of noises that fit type solo. And I just thought, well, I can bend the notes as, as wide as you like on a violin. You know what I mean? Because there's no frets. I can slide an octave. So I went, down, 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 you know, with all that sliding and slipping and, you know. Yeah. And I just did it. Um, amazingly, that was take one with that approach. And I tried it about three more times and never got it anywhere near as close. <laughs> Blimey. So when you do a session, does it work that they just say, thanks, here's the money? Or do you, in that, in some cases, do you have a credit on, on it? Um, normally, you wouldn't have a writing credit. Um, um, and I think they paid me 70 quid for that. Hmm. Um, and I, I ended up... And, um, I don't know, if, you know, I've, I have had writing credits from other sessions where I've done, obviously, obviously I've put the melody into it. Um, yes. There's a track I did with BJ Cole um, called Swing Light, a weird piece of music, which is sort of techno swing almost, where I did a swing pizzicato solo, which you don't hear. You don't hear violin players do swing pizzicato solos. Um, and that's been used all over the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's used in um, Sex and the City, which is shown all over the world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which, so is that the which, case then, that this all becomes part of what one would refer to as a, as a, a pension a pension pot? Kind of. It depends on how long things last. Yes. Uh, I mean, I've co-written adverts with people. It's hardly a pension pot with an advert that's only ever played for a few months. Yeah, but something like Young at Heart, does that, did you say you went to court and got on the writing credit for that one? Yes. Yes. I mean, the silly thing was that the, the guy who wrote the rest of the song claimed he wrote that bit, but he picked his guitar up in the court, played the wrong notes and the wrong chords. He hadn't learned how to play what I'd written, yet he claimed he wrote it and yeah. showed me what to play. And you just think, that's really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if if I had been your uh, lawyer, I'd have said, look, learn learn the bit, at least lie well. Um, well, well he, he did try to learn it, but he couldn't actually play it. <laughs> right. And that was it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the judge spent a lot of time with his hand over his mouth trying, trying to avoid laughing, I think. Yes. And then is it the case then that you just think, well, that's that's fantastic. That's, that's cleared that up and everything's just smooth. Um. Well, I won't tell you about that yet. <laughs> Might have to be some a, a few um, adjustments there, but we'll see what happens later. Yes, okay. I, I, I'll, I'll leave that. Leave that just in case. <laughs> <laughs> then, yeah. So, so then, you know, with the you know the years that that, that trundle by, is it the case then that you you're sort of just because you play with people like Hang Wangford, then you've also been with Shania Twain? Is it the case that you just kind of the phone rings or the email? Pings well, I, I, I joined Hank for a bit. I was in the in the Bluebirds or the Electric Bluebirds. But as soon as we became a band that went out playing live, we need to electrify. So we became the Electric Bluebirds. And Hank poached me. But one of the reasons I wanted to poach, be poached, was BJ Cole played with him, who I thought was wonderful as a pedal steel player. And Andy Roberts was in the band, who was in the Liverpool scene and the Bonzo Dog Doodah band. And um, 
that just convinced me. Andy Roberts is in the band. Right, I'm joining that. <laughs> uh, that went on for, oh, God, oh, till 1990-ish, 91-ish. So that was for about six years. Then I did um, solo stuff and ended up with a band, ended up having my own band. Well, kind of my own band. It's our band. It was the Pistoleros. Just mostly the Hank Mankford band without Hank. Um, because Hank went off to do... Um, um, but did you ever see those TV shows we did for Channel 4? No. Well, it's a shame you don't show them again. Some of it's pretty good. Um, but we did music about uh, some uh, two TV series about country music. And Hank would go off doing research for three months. Um, so we ended up just doing gigs as us. We became Los Pistoleros. Right. There you go. Um, basically, because we, we were... Again, half the band was a band from the tech called the Tex Pistols. Nice. Um, and um, Los Pistoleros seemed to fit because it's basically what the Spanish called um, the Sex Pistols were called the Pistols or Pistoleros, which it, is a good name for them. Absolutely. You know, in in absolutely. Spanish. Yeah. And, you know, so when you, I'm pretty sure that I saw somewhere that you'd worked with Shania Twain, who's kind of. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, 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 yes, yes. Um, because one thing I've noticed, because a few people who... What was, of... what was, I'll tell you what it was funny about that, was because you were supposed to re-record stuff if you did a TV show. The Musicians' Union in those days would insist that you re-recorded the track. Uh, basically, so English people, British musicians would get, um, would get the work. So we were re we were re-recording that track supposedly, but we didn't. We pretended to re-record it, and then we did some show. Was it Brian Connolly show? I think I did with Shania Twain. Uh, it was rather nice. I was playing the solo. I was miming the solo. Can't say right. I was playing the solo uh, with Shania Twain hanging off my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's just hanging off my right shoulder while I played it. Excellent. She's very, she's very small. So, I mean, so she was sort of hanging, hanging on to my, my, my right shoulder while I was playing. Yes. Miming, sorry. But there was, there was another great story about that. We used to have to supposedly re-record the Top of the Pops track. They did Top of the Pops. You're supposed to re-record the track you did. You were given three hours to record it. I mean, it was ludicrous. I mean, how could Queen redo Bohemian Rhapsody in three hours? <laughs> It was just impossible for them. And but the great one was from Shiny Shiny. Those rules still applied when Shiny Shiny was a hit. So one day I ended up at a studio somewhere in Soho, a Trident, that's where it was. And um we were supposed to record the backing track again. But what they'd done was they'd copied the twenty-four track to another twenty-four track. And they'd put this 24 track on the machine with everything recorded on it. And they then pretended, because there was a musician guy, the union guy there watching, they pretended to re record it. Wow. And he didn't suss it. <laughs> I mean, the fact that he had no idea. They were doing. And then the only thing we actually changed was the violin solo for Top of the Pops, because the guy knew that, okay, I'm, I'll just run through and do one another one that'd be just as good as the other one you know what i mean 
and that's the okay so they could go it is different listen to the violin solo <laughs> <laughs> so is it the case then with those kind of gigs that you know it is like everyone just pretending it's been re-recorded for as you know for the British yeah team? but this is years ago now i mean that those rules ended up going eventually i would imagine because they were just so ridiculous yes i mean so, how could you you know as soon as you got um you know those duos soft cell or whatever and there's only two of them on it you know, you, you, you can't re-record everything in three hours. It's just not feasible. It's also a bit weird because with electronic music, it's like, well, actually, it's it's electronic music. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> they're keyboard operators. Yes. <laughs> they're pre-programmed there, you know. So with, yeah. the, with your phenomenal CV of, of session work, I mean, it has, you went, you worked with the Christians, who I remember yeah. there was a member of the Yachts, who were also one of those bands who almost made it in America and then became part of It's Immaterial and then the Christians. I mean, did you, are, are there any particular ones that you've done, which, you, you know, you look back with, real fondness thinking god that was a really good experience the, the bluebells one i enjoyed when i when i walked out after half an hour having finished it i went god that's really quite good and i thought shame it'll never see the light of day because it was completely wrong i mean 84 that was done if you think of all the that, that was the time of you know the electronic music yes and there was there was this acoustic guitars violins there was nothing electronic on it at all and I thought, this is going to get nowhere. It's really good, but it's going to get nowhere. And of course, I mean, I've obviously got to enjoy the Tom Petty stuff. Because I yeah. was a huge fan, always. Yeah. And there's, there's people, obviously, you've worked a lot with uh, the men they couldn't hang, who's sort of, you must feel like that's kind of a marriage made in heaven, working with people like that. It is. I mean, they're, they're, I was a big fan of um, Fairport Convention growing up. And I actually didn't mention earlier on, you know, we're talking about my early youth playing. I'd end up playing with the local Morris team. So I used to end up learning all these tunes. Um, they're so easy. I ended up doing the dances at the same time. <laughs> you know, so with, with someone like Dave Swarbeck, was he somebody that you would particularly used to look at? Yes. Then... I mean, I, I used to learn stuff from him. You know, I, I'd copy it. Um, basically because of his positivity. I mean, he really plays very, very positively and hits the notes really smack on. Where you listen to a lot of folk fiddlers, they, they, they're a bit ginger. Right. You know what I mean? It's, it's a, a violin. As soon as you're a bit ginger on it, it sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those instruments, be loud, positive and wrong. Right. It's much better to be loud and positive. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you... Than be wimpy and wrong. <laughs> That's not a good one. And how have you managed to sort of, you know, one of the great things about obviously your generation is that you're one of the first, not quite because you weren't there in the sixties, but sort of staying alive with with and being a musician and gigging. And I'm probably lifestyle. one of the la I'm probably one of the last in that way. Yes, if you know what I mean. So how yeah. how did you manage to navigate that? Um, mixture of everything because I, I do all sorts of things. I mean, I've believe it or not, I've even been an actor. Um, I don't enjoy it so much as playing, but it's easy enough to do. Yes. Uh, but it's just so boring. You do a film, it's, oh, filming is so tedious. Early um, starts, hanging about. Early starts, you know, I mean, they get you there at six o'clock in the morning so you can watch the girls get made up for two hours. <laughs> you know, I remember I've done old filming like that and I remember doing an advert. So, look, no point me getting there, getting me there at six o'clock in the morning 
There's no filming is going to be done before 10. Get me there at nine. Because come midnight, you're going to be wanting to get the last stuff in the can. And the last thing you want is me tired and making mistakes. Yes, I know. Uh, and um, it worked. We actually got a whole advert in, in the can in one day. Nice. That's good. And and have you enjoyed doing your solo projects? I mean, has that was that quite a different gig? Because you did... You... That was weird, because the way I sing is odd. When I'm a bit of a bing. I mean, I'm a bit of a proper old-fashioned crooner. Yes. Um, and I thought, mm, I don't really want the the life of a of a crooner. But I thought, well, if I can write original songs that fit the crooning, which I managed to do. So, yeah. Um, I mean, it was uh, the man who invented jazz when it came out. I was um, astounded how much radio play it got. It was actually played quite a lot on the radio. Um, but the record company went bankrupt the week it came out. There's been three times now I've had records come out and the record company's gone bankrupt the week it came out. And it's, you know, it happened with the, the Electric Bluebirds made an album. It came out, record company went bankrupt. Everything was in a warehouse. So you got all the reviews, loads of radio play, nothing in the shops. The yeah. same, thing, same thing happened with um, my solo album. Loads of radio play, distributors went bankrupt nothing in the shops and i can't remember there was a third one but i can't which which one that was but with this three times it's happened to me yeah, it's, yeah. Gonna, it's gonna be hard to get over that that feel so, so there's a hell of a lot of luck in this you know <laughs> yeah i'm pretty lucky I'm, i think i'm pretty lucky to make a living as a musician and is it the case then because one thing that i've noticed with a lot of people especially when they're getting to that point in life especially this year going through the attic going right i'm going to archive my own material have you managed to sort of get all your stuff i know cherry red did the fabulous poodles but your own I don't bits and really, pieces i've never really bothered I, occasionally sort of if somebody sends me something that i've done i'll, I'll file it i never listen to it um so do i never listen to myself it's like it's just odd. <laughs> you kind of think, oh, I could have done that better. I could have done that better. I shouldn't have played that note. I should have done that one. You know. Yes. Um, and just, and just lastly, I mean, what would if you could have said something to an eighteen-year-old self starting out? I just wondered, you know, what what advice, what little word, words of wisdom you would have just take it take it seriously from the word go, because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Right. You know, as I say, my my my. I was, I was about to sort of become, do, I did physics at university and I was mostly interested in um, uh, atomic physics. And um, at the time it looked like, well, I'll end up working in an atomic power station or make bombs. Um, and I didn't really fancy doing that. <laughs> Size will, here we come. Yeah, I mean, it would, it would have been something like that. I mean, in fact, I think science has changed and it would I would have got into... Um, um, particle physics had I really done it but I kind of I, I found it easy at school because uh, I was good at math so physics and maths was easy um, when I got to university I didn't really like it, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah I can't believe I bothered <laughs> yeah, this is, this is true. so what have you got I mean obviously this is kind of a weird time because you're somebody who's often gigging and on the road and doing projects. Oh, well, not anymore. No, no, not no. anymore. So what... what I, I haven't done a gig since February. February. And then I did an interview with Hank just as he released his album. He was in a bit of a down state because it wasn't 
obviously having an album just out and then this, but also just not feeling very creative generally. How have you coped with this kind of period? Um, well, luckily this summer the weather hasn't been bad. <laughs> no, the weather <laughs> so has the, been very good. So, so the garden has called quite a lot. Um, I've done a few sessions, um, mostly soundtrack stuff for um, for uh, TV shows, and because they still have to happen. Um, I haven't done so many albums this like in the last nine months or whatever, um, but they're beginning to start again because you know, but you know it's. You know, I've just managed to get by. I mean, I, I get a pension now, so <laughs> and a bus pass. I, I, I have, I've never applied for a bus pass because I drive, right? And um, I should get a bus pass, but uh, but I hardly ever go on buses. No, no, it's hard to to. But yes, yeah, so so is there anything you've got planned for next year, or have you just thought I'll just wait and see if next year's going to happen? I, it, it would be gigs because I love gigging. As I say, I, I would love playing with the men that couldn't hang. Because they're, to me, they're the acceptable side of English folk music. Yes. There's next to no diddly diddly music in it. You know, there's no hey nonny nonny finger in the ear kind of thing, which <laughs> I absolutely loathe. Um, yeah. But they do um, real folk music. In fact, I, I did some stuff with um, Rob Johnson a while oh. back. And Rob Johnson's just number one on the Amazon downloads this weekend. God, God Almighty! You know, they had that. He's done a song about Dennis Skinner, um, called Tony Skinner's Lad, because his dad is Dennis Skinner's dad was Tony, and it's a mixture of his song with edited bits of of, of um, Dennis Skinner's speeches. Nice. And um, you know, a lot of Labour politicians have been been plugging it, and he's actually made number one on the Amazon downloads this weekend. <laughs> Checking I think he's, think he's something in the, he's, he's in the top 20, I think, of, of the pop singles chart. <laughs> it's, an, it's, an odd, it's an odd sort of piece of music. Yeah. Well, it but sounds a lot, a lot of his songs are great. I mean, he's a really good songwriter, Rob well, Johnson. He, he has been around for a long time. Just, okay, just lastly, because a lot of people, musicians I spoke to, have really relied on Bandcamp. Is that one of those platforms that you've gone towards, or have you not bothered? Bandcamp, no, I've never bothered you know, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> I mean, I don't do any social media. I'm, you know, I kind of think I never look at anybody else's social media. So why should anybody look at mine? You know, it's a good point. Yes. Anyway. You know, I'm just not interested. <laughs> I don't care what you have for dinner. I don't care what your breakfast was. I give you know, like stuff people put up on there. You think what? Yeah, no, it's best not, to it's best to unfollow most people. Really. Keep them as friends, just unfollow them. But anyway, look, this has been brilliant. Thank you ever so much for your time. This has been fantastic. And when I put it out, I can always give you, send you a link and then you can... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll see how, see how, I'll, 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 I'll do, and I might listen to sort of five minutes of it. <laughs> I know. You're... I'm a bit, will you intersperse in, in, in it with um, bits of music? Yes, I'll do that. That would be good. And um, but people, um, I mean, it's interesting. People really love, you know, like hearing interviews. Actually, it's quite. I think actually in this day and age, you know, having these kind of like ten seconds here or twenty seconds, there's a kind of a lot of people now who just actually was want to sit sit down and listen to a story of somebody and think, oh yeah, that was really interesting. So um, it's been, you know, people 
I've, I found there is kind of a new market out there of people with um, more than just kind of a five second attention span. All right. I mean, it's, it's funny when you were thinking, you know, what, what went on. Had I been 20 years younger, I don't think I'd have got anywhere with a violin player. Because there wouldn't have been the, the start, as it were. To, it must be really difficult now for musicians now. You yeah. know, venues are closing all over the place. I mean, central London, all the venues are almost gone. There's only um, the 100 Club left because ridiculous congestion charging and now, um, you know, congestion charging is seven days a week now. Goes up to 10 o'clock. Right. Um, and the ultra low emission zone, we could charge as well. So if you want to do a gig in London, in central London, you're spending about 35 to 40 quid just driving in. That doesn't include the petrol. Just to get your equipment to the gig is going to cost you 30 to 40 pounds. Yes. You know, if you've got five people coming from five different parts of London, Woof, there's 150 gone from your from from whatever fee there is. It's and it's ludicrous, you know, doing central London clubs, but they've all gone. Yeah. I mean, central London is going to completely disappear if if Sadiq Khan gets his way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I drove up to um, Swell's place from the men they couldn't hang the other week, the other day to do a session, and Park Lane that used to be four lanes has now got an empty bike lane, two empty bus lanes, one lane for traffic. And it's just a non-stop traffic jam all the time. You think, oh, oh. you're complaining about pollution and you're creating it. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, I was going to say, um, do you have things like um, the man who invented jazz or my solo stuff to play as well? No. I just... Just your... Um... This is murder. You're oh, that's got the man. That's got the man who invented jazz on. Right, that's the one. All oh, right. Uh, um, also, there's a Pistoleros one. Have you ever, have you got that one? No, I haven't got the Pistoleros. What I might do is send you a couple of tracks then. Okay. I mean, I take it. I can. I can. I mean, are they? Would they be good enough quality for you to broadcast? If I said yes. Oh God, yeah. I mean, if you just. I don't know if you use WeTransfer or something like I that. I tend, to, I tend to just compress it a bit and <laughs> send it by email. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, I mean, mostly if you just send one track at a time or two. But yes, I can. I can go up to about twenty megabytes. So yeah, I mean, that's what is when someone tries to go. Oh look, oh blimey! Has got, I can't do the whole album, but no, I'll send but... you. I can, I'll send you a couple of Pistoleros tracks. Oh, brilliant! That would be fantastic. Well, that's oh. fan, that is brilliant. That that's and, and oh that's um. I'll list, I'll list the people in it because it's got BJ. You know, Martin Belmont? You know, you're aware of Martin Belmont? He was a sort of 70s, 80s. He was in Bees Make Honey, um, Graham Parker and the Rumour, um, Carleen Carter he played with. Um, oh, a lovely story about Carleen Carter. Oh, what's that? Um, I, I kind of knew her because she was married to Nick Lowe. And then... The Hank Wakeford band. We did a, um, we did a, the, the, one of those TV series. We went to America to film it. I remember doing a gig in um, Nashville, and Carleen Carter was there, and um, I sang a song. I think it's called the Tennessee Local. It was an old Tennessee only Ford song, 
just very deep. So, I mean, I've got quite a deep singing voice. And the most silly story, she came into the dressing room after the gig and went, Buffy, you've got the most fabulous voice. Can I sit on your throat? <laughs> it's just the whole, the whole dressing room just fell about. Thank God. <laughs> really stupid. I mean, that's like, that's classic Carlene. She's sort of filthy. I mean, there's a line you there's a line you can't you're gonna have to edit out here. She used to go, I'm Colleen Carter, I'm the gal who put the cunt in country. <laughs> Jeez, that's great. I'll write that down. I think we'll leave it there. It's all getting just too much and too emotional. Anyway, that is the end of the interview, apart from a few more moments of saying goodbye. Where we stumble over that emotional moment. Anyway, that was me in conversation with Bobby Valentino. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Keep it positive, keep it groovy. That's all I have to say. And also, all these interviews have been archived and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check it out. It might just change your life. It probably won't. Anyway, have a great week.